Hey, Tubby. Hey, Susanna. How's it going? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm really looking forward to the Sun Carnival this weekend. Oh my God, this weekend. I'm very, I'm very excited. excited. Yeah, I'm very, very excited. Tell me more. Tell me more. What's going on? What's the Sun Carnival? Well, you know, it's our annual event where we bring a lot of EV owners and their super cool cars and dealerships with the latest EV models mm-hmm. uh, out to a parking lot where... Everyday folks like you and me and our listeners can go and check them out, ask questions, learn all about what it's like to have an EV, and then also preview some of the uh, the models that are available for purchase today. That is so cool, especially this year where I hear there's like so many dealerships that are actually like empty. Like there's like like yeah. no cars to check out at dealerships these days. Yeah. So especially for anyone who's like really interested in checking out a cool new EV model. We're gonna have a bunch. I actually just got, we got a message from uh, our friend Jake who's putting the event together and he's super psyched because he has like a really exciting list of cars that are gonna be out there. Also, he's a major EV nerd. And he is, yeah, he knows like everything. So if you go out to, to the event, that's Sun Carnival, um, Saturday, uh, 1 to 5 p.m. at the South Burlington Hannafords. Uh, just ask for Jake. Uh, if you have any questions yes. on EVs, Jake Elliott is our man uh, in Vermont with the EV plan. And let's actually just give a rundown of some of the really cool cars that are going to be there. So many cool ones. Yeah, there's the, uh, so the Tesla models, S, X, Y, and the three. There's going to be a Kia Nero. There's going to be a Hyundai, 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 Kona, Hyundai, oh Hyundai. I'm really excited for the Ford Mustang Mach-E. That's going to be really cool. That one looks so cool. Oh, even cooler? Well, maybe even cooler, depending on the crowd. But the VW, their like latest model, the ID4 is going to be there, which yep. is really cool. Yeah. Uh, Chevy Bolt. Um, the the Vo- Volvo? Yeah, I heard, right. The Volvo. I think the Volvo is going to be yeah, cool, The too. Volvo, that's the XC40 Recharge. Uh, the Fiat is crazy. Fiat 500. I haven't even e. heard of that yeah, one. Fiat I didn't 500 look that one up. E. And then this is really crazy. So I saw a video yesterday. The owner just put it together over the weekend, I guess, in advance of Sun Carnival. This dude converted a 1972 MG midget into a full electric what? vehicle. Yeah, with like. Isn't that like a James Bond, like little so tiny cool. convertible? And in the video, he was like showing me the shift. They're showing the, the video, like the shifter actually what? is integrated into Wait, it. Wait, so but like, you don't need to shift no, the electric you don't, motor. You don't, What's you don't. going on there? It's purely aesthetic and it's so cool. So there's going to be a full EV conversion of a midget from 72, a nice. Nissan Leaf, a Honda Clarity, which is a hybrid, and like there's a few more. Um, there's e-bikes too, right? Yeah, there's going to be e-bikes. Uh, there's actually also going to be... Uh, so have you heard of beta technologies? Oh, right. The electric helicopter yeah, people, right? Yeah, full, like, basically electric aviation company. Um, what? They, they're coming? They're coming. They're going to bring, like, a VR training, like, trailer that What's they built. What's a VR like, they, like, trailer? Like, they, like, built, like, a, like, a training module to train their pilots. Like, a flight simulator? Essentially, yeah. Yeah. And the um, thing is, like, cool. imagine, like, a massive drone, like, a quadcopter-style thing. And you've got a sense of like what you will be virtually pilot. It's going to be the coolest thing in a parking lot ever. Uh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so once again, that's the Sun Carnival Saturday from 1 to 5 p.m. at the South Burlington Hannaford. Um, I'm actually like, my head is so firmly in the EV world right now. It's yeah. kind of crazy. Like, you know, I'm going solar as we talked about in the last episode. I'm like considering like what I'm like the system sized up essentially for an eventual EV car purchase. Uh, which will, I think, happen if <laughs> at the earliest when we get word from the garage. We just dropped off our gas guzzling SUV uh, for its like pre inspection inspection, and it looks like a lot of work. Uh, it might be. And I'm like, you know what? Why would I even put more money into this hunk of junk? <laughs> Seriously, and support dinosaur. fossil fuels, right? Exactly. Yeah. And like, let me just make this. So anyway, I'm like thinking about EVs. 
I'm really excited about the Ford F-150 for a number of reasons, but like it might be like too much like truck. I mean, I don't want to like insult you here, Jimmy, <laughs> but I just cannot imagine you in a truck. I don't, a truck. Like you just moved up here to the country yeah. two what, years, two years two ago. Years. Yeah, it's been two years. I don't I don't know. It's kind of like when you go to Dallas and you see people walking around with like big cowboy hats and buckles <laughs> and you're like, Are you new here? Are you new here? Yeah. We don't really wear it. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no practical use for all that truck, so it's definitely something I need to consider. The price point obviously being It is cool though. You need a whole whole truck if you want to pay that amount of money definitely yeah and so like there's i mean it's not just me like there's so much right now just in the air uh about evs and we talked last you know last episode about charging stations and i think the other piece of that is there's this really exciting development for a potential expansion of the federal ev tax credit yeah, I'm I'm super stoked about those because I mean, if you look at the price tag on most of these EVs, they're pretty out of reach for someone like me. And I'm sure many of our listeners and many other people. Um, I was looking at the Bolt EUV, which Ooh. is kind of like the new kind of more SUV type version of the Bolt, mm-hmm. and it starts at 33k, right. which is way more than I've ever paid for a car. But it is one of the cheapest EVs available. Right. And if you start throwing in these tax credits, you throw in your trade-in, all of a sudden you're looking at like, oh, maybe this is only a $10,000 loan. Yeah. Maybe this is actually something I could afford. Could I afford to do this? Yeah, especially if you have the tax appetite on the federal level. And uh, I think we're not going to cover it as deeply in this episode, uh, but there's also state incentives too, right? There's like, Mm -hmm. there's a mix of federal and state incentives in most cases. So yeah, it's really important to sort of like get in the weeds and You'll discover, I think, if you have the time to like research these sort of like opportunity costs, like a lot of these EVs do become affordable. And then especially as we dig into this potential expansion of the federal EV incentive. So we're going to spend this episode sort of breaking it down, uh, what we've learned about that proposal and actually some of the counterpoints. There's been sort of like lots of people who are, you know, really for this. And there's some people that are against this. So we're going to kind of dig into both perspectives and break it down for you. Here we go. Let's get into it. Okay, so let's break down like what this proposal is, uh, and then we can talk about the sort of like pros and cons, right? Or like the the sort of like positive and negative. Because there's already a tax credit now, right? Yes. The current federal incentive is set at $7,500, and it only applies to new EV purchases and not leases. So this is like Mm. you're buying your car, not leasing it. Mm -hmm. And there's another caveat, which is... If you were buying a new EV, it has to be an EV from a manufacturer that has sold fewer than 200,000 electric vehicles total. That's interesting. Yeah. So basically, it's this way, I guess when it was originally written, it's like this way to incentivize not only manufacturers to get out there, but like people to adopt it early. To like get there and support the manufacturers. And in a way, it becomes a way of like the federal government acting as like like a middleman hype man of sorts. Right. Being like, you got to buy these cars right now. This is really cool. And so, you know, yeah, that basically that incentive, the existing incentive is currently measured against the EV buyer's tax appetite. What that means is if you Wait, does anyone have appetite for taxes? (laughs) Because I do not. Nice one. I forgot that we have not been doing dad jokes. So that was... (laughs) Thank you, mom jokes on that one. I'm just saying no one likes taxes. What are you talking about tax appetite? Okay, yeah. I've had to have this one explained to me a couple times because I'm going solar and I'm finding out that like 
you know, I'm going to get a lot of like New York has fantastic state and federal tax incentives to yes. go solar. And what it tends to be about is what kind of tax appetite do you have at the end of the year? And what appetite means in this case is like, let's say, for example, at the end of the year, you owed the federal government something like $3,000. I wish that was LA. Like federal government. <laughs> let's say let's say you owed them $7,000, right? <laughs> the EV tax credit, right? That's $7,500 would cover anything that you owed the federal government but not anything more. So it's not the kind of mm. like tax break that you get back in cash, right, as a return if you go over, but up to your appetite for federal taxes, like let's say you owed them 7,000, that would just be zeroed out if you ha- yeah. if you bought a new EV that, you know, the manufacturer has sold less than 200,000 units. Well, can't can't you just roll over the extra to the next year? Uh, just take in, it later. In this case, in the existing EV tax credit, you cannot. Oh, bummer. It's, yeah, it's a one-time thing. It's kind of a bummer. Um, it's better than nothing, but it's definitely a bummer. And I want to connect the thread all the way back to the last episode where we were talking about potentially like stimulating EV purchases. If you think about this sort of fertile ground that we're on for rewriting the rules on these incentives, it might also be interesting to consider how some of these incentives might apply to non-new EV purchases or maybe even leases to make this credit more accessible and more enticing to folks that might not have that tax appetite. Like to have a tax appetite, you need to be making a certain amount of money and spending a certain amount of money. And that puts up some barriers, right? So if we're really going to rip these barriers down, um, it might be time to start thinking about, you know, feasible way to extend that and open it up some more. I feel like this would be a really great opportunity to do so. Totally. Because, I mean, this this tax credit is clearly incentivizing early adopters, both manufacturing side and also on the buyer side, which I guess... You could argue the more people who are buying new cars, the more, you know, used cars there'll be in a few years' time, more people to get in. But yeah, how are, how are the economics going to um, affect that second group of people if they don't get the tax credit? Like, oh, does yeah. that mean that they kind of have to make up for the tax credit in the used car market price? Great question. I think, yeah, you're right. Your, your read is, I think it, it, it holds water. This current scenario with tax incentives does prioritize the experience of that early adopter which tends to be that of a more privileged set like if you can get out there and throw money at throw money at it and you get some money back like that's the sort of american system right now money makes you money Hmm. okay so how's it changing well it's it's, gonna change right yeah well hopefully because like this is just a proposal this this is a proposal okay um it's a part of the whole budget reconciliation and got it you know sort of it it was there's so much in the budget reconciliation this is all the ride along to the big infrastructure plan yes which i think as of today, we avoided a government shutdown just to place us in sort of current <laughs> events right now. They, they basically put, the Democrats put out a short-term mini reconciliation just to keep the lights on, essentially, and keep things moving. Um, anyway, so this new extension, expansion of the EV tax credit is being proposed by Dan Kildee, who is a congressman from Michigan, and we'll get back to why that's relevant in a minute. And this proposal makes some really, I think, some pretty amazing expansions of the existing incentive. Let's hear it. And it seems like it's going to benefit a lot of Americans and manufacturers, even the ones that are currently complaining about it, which we'll get to as well. Remember, too, that this proposal is a big part of Joe Biden's goal to ensure that EVs comprise at least 50% of U.S. vehicle sales by 2030. And this is, you know, his priorities as printed. 
boost U.S. union jobs. That's okay. actually a part of this expansion. So let's just go down a bullet point list uh, of what is going to be added and removed from the existing uh, EV tax credit. The first key thing, actually, is that it's going to propose to remove the 200,000 vehicle limit per manufacturer. Interesting. So like you've sold more than 200,000 units, like a Tesla, for example, has like been rocking sales of EVs. They're like the tip of the sphere. They are creating interest and stimulating interest in that space. They haven't had this EV tax credit applicable to any of their car sales since like 2018. Wow. They would be back on the list. They can then, people who are buying a new Tesla, uh, not leasing, but buying a new Tesla would be able to have this incentive. Great. It's going to keep the 7,500 incentive for new electric cars for an additional five years. So it's extending okay. that for five years. Fantastic. It's going to make the, this is really huge, right? It's going to make that $7,500 incentive a point of sale discount. Whoa. Yes. Instead whoa, 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 of this whoa. like tax credit appetite jumble, jump through hoops, you know, income prioritization. It's just a discount now. Okay, so you don't have to have the tax appetite anymore. Now anybody can take it if, I mean, you have to have the means to buy a new yeah. car, but it's just a discount off the top. You literally go to like your Like you don't even have to finance not. that amount. It's no, just off the top. It's just off the top. I mean, which that is would be huge. So huge when it comes to access. So, so huge. You take yeah. that $31,000 price tag and you drop it down into the mid-20s and now you're competing with mid-range cars. Like that's a that's yeah. an easy choice right there. Or it begins to be an easier choice right yeah, there. Yeah, I mean a second-hand RAV4 is like oh, 20 yeah. grand. Yeah, I don't know enough about cars. <laughs> I'm going to get Jake on this podcast. I'm get Jake, Jake or our friend Adam who will just <laughs> yes. be like, the RAV4 is a beautiful machine. Please don't talk about that. Yeah, anyway, that was my, that was my Adam impression. So um, there's also EVs uh, that have a battery pack smaller than 40 kilowatt hours uh, are limited to a $4,000 incentive. So it's actually, it's prioritizing larger car, like larger, exactly, larger range cars. An additional, check this out, an additional 4,500 for EVs that are assembled at union factories. Oh, wow. So I mean, that's quite, like that's more than 50% of the incentive you could have added on if it's assembled at a union factory. Yeah, that's that's 1,200, that's, yeah, 12,000 right there. Pretty amazing. That seems like that would create a lot of demand on the buyer side because everybody wants that incentive, right? So exactly. they're going to be saying like, which car has been made in a union factory? Exactly. And you add on to that another five hundred dollars for EVs using battery packs with fifty percent of components made in the U.S. That includes wow. cells. So if the battery cells, if like fifty percent of the battery is made in the U.S., you add an additional five hundred, bringing the total to you know twelve thousand five hundred. Okay. That's really right. impressive. I'm starting to see how this is this is supporting uh, U.S. union jobs. Yes, yeah, exactly. After the first five years of this proposal, the 7500 will apply only to U.S. made electric vehicles, period, and mm. it will apply for another five years. So it's really extending that sort of like manufactured made in America through line. Yeah. Well, also this. Toyota doesn't have any maybe plug-in electrics they've done a lot of hybrids with the prius but they've kind of been i don't want to say laggards that seems a little harsh but i think they're more interested in other forms of non-emission technology yes and they've been kind of not anti-ev but a little slow to develop their own ev line this is kind of like hey 
you only have five years of this exactly. tax credit here. You better release an EV. Well said, Suzanne. And in research for another episode, I found that Toyota has actually been one of the most vocal opponents of all of these new expansions of EV tax credits as written right. or, and as proposed because they, and Toy- like, we got to give credit where credit's due. Toyota was like a pioneer in that hybrid space. Right. They really the helped. Exactly. They really helped introduce that idea of making like a 50 mile per gallon, you know, expectation on the consumer side. And that's good. That's a stepping stone. But- they have not kept pace with the full EV transition. And so they're actually using business legal means to try to slow the competition to play that catch up. So interesting though, I mean, Toyota has, uh, the, you know, one of the best reputation for cars that like stay together. And oh, no, last. they're an amazing and, automaker. I mean, my brother drove his like 1988 Toyota Corolla for yeah, like 20 no. years. It's a workhorse. Um, it's a real, I mean, they're an amazing quality car maker. They are. So it just makes me wonder like, well, why don't they want to get into EVs? Yeah. Like, I mean, why are they? That's there's weird. There's like meta, there's like meta supply. I feel like that's a whole other economics. episode. Yeah, there's a whole, we can get, get into, into that. that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Uh, and back to the proposal. Um, it's going to introduce uh, price limits on the EVs that are eligible for this incentive. So sedans under 55000 SUVs under 69000 pickup trucks under 74000 and vans under 54000 And what's interesting is that like conspicuously for all of the sort of big three U.S. Uh, auto manufacturers that have announced next year models of uh, their electric cars, vans, and uh, pickup trucks, all of these prices uh, are just higher than the highest starting price point um, for most of their models. So it's like this was designed very much, you know, put forward by Dan Kildee. Like I just said, we can sort of circle back. He's the Michigan governor. So this right. is absolutely supporting his home state's, you know, reputation and lineage as the home of the American automobile. Uh, And and sort of a a unionized hub of where cars have traditionally been made in the U.S. And this harkens back to my ridiculous like pie in the sky proposal of the last episode of like going back to poodle skirts and like drive-ins. Like we seem to be re-entering this wild period in America that like echoes some of the old ways that we positioned ourselves in our industries around the time of like major road and highway interconnection and interstate highway systems coming up. So it's nostalgic as it is exciting that we might be able to like recreate or restart a chapter of American history using redundant systems like car factories that exist, that have been updated for this EV transition, roads and highways that are obviously going to be serviced with this upcoming infrastructure plan. Like it all starts to like make sense when you look at these individual parts like folding over each other. I think it also makes a ton of sense. I mean, when we're talking about you know, the the scale of what we have to do is ahead of us is really rebuilding, you know, building better, as everyone yeah. likes to say, right. um, a lot of infrastructure. Like exactly. it's energy infrastructure, it's transportation infrastructure. It's like, who's actually doing that work? It's men and women who are workers. Yeah, the workers. So it's like, yeah, we see that there's a ton of work ahead of us to make these transitions. And now we're kind of hearkening back to an era where workers were really important and we were kind of putting them front and center and they were not only leading the way with the important work they were that they were doing but we're kind of giving them a more important place in society if this is how our tax you know the um, the incentives are going we're saying like yeah let's make sure that they're u.s uh jobs let's make sure that they're union jobs because these are the people who are making the transition happen let's make sure that they are uh are are incentivized to keep doing the work and and you know, rewarded as they should be. And I mean, we saw this firsthand at the sort of the beginning months of the pandemic outbreak, where really what we were seeing was like uh, an immediate 
endangerment of what we call the central and frontline workers. And it's like, what happens to our society when we can't drive to the grocery store and buy groceries and, you know, we can't, you know, do these basic functions that are served by the American workforce, like the worker workforce, like all the telecommuters, us included, the privilege of like, you know, telecommuting from our homes and staying safe in that way while people were putting their lives, their health on the line for their bread. Uh, And that's what allowed this country to continue to hobble along, even through this hopefully once in a lifetime, you know, public health crisis. So like we really saw how fragile our society can be through something like that, an extended public health crisis. And I I love that, you know, yeah, as you said, like a tax code, a tax extension, a tax break can essentially reinforce the importance of and try to simulate the direct economy of the American worker. It's a a good move. Oh, and sorry, one more thing uh, that I forgot to mention about the uh, proposed extension. It, It also introduces caps on income to get the incentives. But they very much mirror the other elements of Biden's potential tax focus on essentially taxing, increasing taxes and burdens upon the highest income percentage. Because the caps on income that were proposed were were quite generous and high at an adjusted gross income of about up to 400,000 for individuals and up to about 800,000 for joint filers. So it's not cutting out even like you know, air quotes here, like rich Americans, it's cutting out like hyper rich Americans. So you can still, and that's like, that is kind of par for the course in this sort of Joe Biden tax (laughs) utopia that he's proposing. (laughs) It's like the richest get cut out. Well, and you can kind of even see that with the price limits that have been set. Exactly. I mean, I know that the Ford Mach-E starts at around 43K. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The SUV cap is under 69. Right. I know the Tesla SUV is like over 100 grand. Yeah, exactly. So they're kind of already saying, you know, even with with the price caps on the um, cars themselves, like if you're in the market to buy a crazy expensive car, this tax credit isn't for you. Exactly. You know? Yeah, you probably don't need this. So it's huge. That's a, I think that's like actually like a lot of really potentially positive benefits um, to yeah. the American consumer. It's like supporting uh, middle middle income, you know, working class people in terms of making actual cars themselves, like right. supporting the union worker. jobs, yeah. U.S. factories. It's supporting uh, the car purchase itself. So they're supporting the buyers uh, by saying you can't have this if you are looking to buy a really expensive car or if you have a ton of income right i mean it seems like all good why is there any pushback I don't get it. <laughs> yeah so well okay so first the most easy sort of pushback the easy as in like expected pushback is from non-us based automakers right so the toyotas ah uh, and Hondas. And, okay you know, they're obviously upset because this incentive really applies to american-made electric vehicles and that's clear that's easy to understand and from the consumer side you know this definitely mitigates some of the overall incentive to go EV because maybe the model you really, really want was like not American made. But I'm also going to say like subjectively speaking, it, it might be a really small subset of consumers that's like, I really want this Toyota EV when it you know is announced, but I'm not going to get it because it doesn't get the tax incentive. Like I, I'm sure that'll dissuade some people from buying that EV, but already, I mean, from, from my perspective, the work of that incentive was done because it shifted the imagination and the focus towards buying an EV. Like we're trying to move an entire generation of buyers off of, you know, ICE internal combustion engines to EVs. So I think 
Yeah, like, it will narrow your options. Like, if you really want the incentive more than the model, then yes, you will narrow your options. But I think we know how consumer mentality basically works. When you really want the shiny bobble, you will buy it. You will save your money and buy it or you will steal your money and you will <laughs> buy it or whatever. Probably not steal your money. <laughs> hey, this is, this is America. You know, sometimes we steal our money. Um. Um, so that's the, you know, that's like one of the big pushbacks is like the non-US automakers are like, what about us? Like, nah. The other piece of this puzzle, I think the sort of pushback to that pushback that I have is that under the existing rules, right, Tesla ran out of incentives after it sold its 200,000th car. But... Tesla's doing fine. Like, they're, they're that doing didn't more stop than anybody fine. from buying their cars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. So it's like another piece of evidence that like the incentive itself is not the thing that motivates like the total car purchase. It's like an added plus for the people that are in the know. And like right. the numbers don't lie. Like Tesla crossed the two hundred thousand car line. I think in like twenty eighteen, they sold a total that year of like one hundred ninety seven thousand cars. Very next year, they posted one hundred ninety five thousand car sales, and then in twenty twenty, a total of 292,000 car sales. So it's yeah. like, we take that as an example. If anything, they should be celebrating the removal <laughs> of that 200,000 car phase out because they're going to start to get that bonus again. But uh, they're not celebrating that? No, Tesla's, yeah, Tesla's pushing back but Tesla, as well. Isn't Tesla American-made? I mean, they're... Uh, Tesla's, yeah, one of the most American-made cars. They're just so not... So what's their deal? Well, they're like, they're un- getting the incentive. They're American-made. They're not unionized, one. There seems oh. to be a, a wild, you know, tweet battle between Elon Musk and oh, Joe boy. Biden. But Joe Biden is not on Twitter, I guess, so he's not responding. There's just like a... I think Elon Musk's beef with Joe and this whole tax thing is bigger than just... Okay. Tesla, because his sales are doing great on that right? on the car. But yeah, there's like a lot of like you know uh, rocket envy stuff happening in the Twitterverse. <laughs> right now. No, but I think I think legitimately he's not. It's not a unionized workforce. And I think like a couple of weeks ago there were statements from Toyota, Honda, and Tesla that came out against the proposal, citing that the bill was written uh, as written would favor the big three American automakers, which it will. Elon tweeted, you know, this is written by Ford. UAW lobbyists as they make their electric car in Mexico. Not obvious how this serves American taxpayers. That's end quote hmm, on his tweet. That's an interesting twist. And look, he's right. The current Ford Mach-E Mustang is produced in Mexico. But the upcoming Ford F-150 and their transit van are both going to be built in the U.S. by unionized workers. And as we mentioned earlier, that's a huge, you know, there's a huge advantage to American taxpayers to have the tax incentive converted to a point of sale discount. So to the second part of his tweet where he's like, not sure how this serves the American taxpayer. It's like, it's a huge discount, buddy. Like, it definitely serves yeah. the American taxpayer. <laughs> also, like, this is written by Ford lobbyists. But like, if they're currently making their car in Mexico, yeah, it doesn't currently benefit them. No. So also, like, he's saying, oh, it's written by Ford lobbyists. Okay, because they are are following these rules, so they're a unionized shop. But like, isn't it kind of written by for the American worker lobbyists? Yeah, generally speaking, if it's a unionized operation, and look, let's there is money in politics. There are lobbyists in politics on all sides, right? I'm not saying I like that particularly, but yeah, in this case, it's if if indeed it's written by lobbyists, they are supporting a fully unionized workforce in the contiguous United States of America. 
Yeah. It's not a bad for the American taxpayer. I just think it's weird that Elon is like trying to shift blame and responsibility onto other car manufacturers when in fact what it seems like he's saying is that he's anti-union and anti-worker, but he's like trying to cover that up by saying yeah. it's Ford's fault. It's like, yeah, cuz Ford is supporting union workers. Well, and we might jobs. have to take a broader look at like the benefits of unions right and like how supporting a union potentially is like a good thing for the american i mean this is this sounds like so basic to say but like how supporting union jobs is good for the american worker right it's true and actually the entire point of unions is to give workers a seat at the table right right. to give them a voice with executive decisions right yeah and i think like so there was a separate study like even beyond all this like car talk this ev talk There's like a a separate study that I read in preparation for this episode by the Economic Policy Institute, which we'll link to in the description. And it found that labor unions are particularly good for workers during a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is from a study. During the crisis, unionized workers have been able to secure enhanced safety measures, additional premium pay, paid sick time, and a say in the terms of furlough or work share arrangements to save jobs. Like these pandemic specific benefits build on the many ways that unions help workers. And this is critical to consider that many of the root causes of climate change also increase the risk of pandemics. Deforestation, which occurs mostly for agricultural purposes, is the largest cause of habitat loss worldwide. Loss of habitat forces animals to migrate and potentially contact other animals or people and share germs. Large livestock farms can also serve as a source for spillover of infections from animals to people. So creating safer working conditions to mitigate the duration and severity of economic shutdowns, for example, that occur is certainly a priority if like capitalism is gonna survive itself as the sort of dominant economic model. And labor unions are leading the way in those safety protocols, like supporting these people as climate change is making, you know, these conditions of pandemics or severe weather, the things that make work more dangerous for workers we got to bring up the unions and strengthen them so that the workers can negotiate for better working conditions and keep working, right? If if that's the real goal of capitalism is to keep working, then I think we need to support the the sort of proven entities that are making the workplace safer. Um, and this, you know, in, incentive as written absolutely preferences those, you know, workplaces and prioritizes the American imagination, the buyer's imagination, the consumer's imagination to purchase cars that were made in those shops. So I think on a meta, on a macro scale, it's really good for the American taxpayer because it's really good for a healthy economy in these shifting, often more dangerous times. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I'm starting to feel like it's just all connected as usual. Uh-huh. <laughs> we got to give credit where credit is due. Like Elon Musk, Tesla specifically, that brand is one of the vanguards of EVs in the American conversation. Absolutely. And like, they kicked it all off they again. Kicked, they kicked it all off again, right? And it was like this huge explosion. And I, I do think that they have a really sizable head start in this market with the buyer that has the budget for that car. So it's like they are that kind of gold standard of the luxury EV experience. And if any of their models do fall under that price point for purchase, then they're going to get their, you know, $7,500 federal incentive back. And I I also want to remind everyone that like, even on the uh, Tesla um, car configurator page, they have a tool built in to help you track state incentives that are still applicable to purchase their automobile. So it's like, it's not like buying a Tesla gets you nothing. 
the complaint seems like a person in the first position jockeying to like stay mm. keep their head start which i get that's good business practice by a business leader in this form of capitalism he's maybe not looking out for the industry as a whole though maybe like not <laughs> the transition <laughs> yeah, of yeah. the transportation industry exactly right that makes sense I mean, there's other benefits too, like beyond just safety in the workplace. Uh, the same study that was talking about uh, how labor unions performed really admirably during COVID-19 to protect their workers also found that the unionized workers earn an average of 11.2% more in wages than non-unionized peers. That's workers in the same industry and occupation with similar education and experience. And in a healthy and more equitable economy, more taxpayer with more taxpayers with higher wages means more domestic buying power and spending which will, of course, further stimulate the economy. More people with more money, good, yes. Yep. Uh, the study also found that Black and Hispanic workers get a larger boost from unionization. Black workers represented by a union are paid 13.7% more than their non-unionized peers. Hispanic workers are represented that are represented by unions get paid 20.1% more than their non-unionized peers. So again, mm. kind of like linking back to that concept we introduced in the last episode, we want more buying power in communities that have been underserved. And we're finding that union workers have more income and thus potentially more buying power. That's good. <laughs> this is all potentially a good that could come from this. Yeah, I mean, I think this whole conversation, aside from, you know, being helpful and interesting to know what's coming up for the uh, EV tax credit, I feel like it's bringing up this larger question of just how do we how do we want these systems to change? You know, we're always talking about systemic change mm. and we're usually talking about it in the frame of, you know, the transition to clean energy has to be systemic. So while we're really glad when people make the individual choice to go clean energy, and that happens to be, you know, Sun Commons business model, mm -hmm. really the long-term solution is that we have to transition the clean energy economy or we have to transition the energy economy to just be clean. Yes. So that it's not a decision that individuals have to make. It's just simply what's available for us to use. But I think here again, there, you know, there's another question here of like, well, what other systemic changes do we need to initiate to make it a fairer system, to right. make it a more just system? Because it's, you know, it's the system that got us into a place where we make decisions that uh, you know, that don't don't care about the communities that they mm -hmm. impact, that don't care about its environmental impact. It's, you know, it's it's a system that puts economic growth and uh, shareholder profits at the, you know, the priority, the yeah. top priority it's of the goal list. Extractive, so, it's exploitative by definition. It's trying to derive value as much as possible from the worker, period. Like right. that's the goal. Right. So it's like, yeah, is this another system we need to change? Do we need to reconsider how how workers are are treated and their place in the in the economic system? Yeah, right. I mean, especially, you know, working class folks, people in the trades so often, you know, doesn't feel like they're given uh, the status that they deserve. No. They're the people who are actually building all of this we're stuff. Holding this entire economy up. Like we saw like I was saying, we saw what happens when you know, our grocery stores are endangered when we basically like shut off large portions of the working class economy. It seems like the end of days for a, we start hoarding toilet paper, you know, we start acting a fool, you know what yep. I'm saying? And even people of privilege like start pulling up stakes and selling their homes and moving. Like we're going to do an episode at some point about how basically climate migration has already started and like affluent people are kicking it off, right? 
and you know kind of the way that i see your awesome point or your question i guess is like yeah like these moments as we emerge from a crisis and we are in a period of sustained climate crisis so we have like the micro crisis of covid-19 but in the macro crisis of of the changing climate these are the spaces and times in history when society can make massive change and pull it off and make it stick I do think it's it's an interesting question, and it is one that we have not yet answered, either in the solar industry or in you know any of these wider industries that are trying to bring us to a more a just place and a uh, one that is sustainable. What are the systems that we are willing to change? How far are we willing to go to really reshape our thinking and our systems so that we're not in this position again? You know, so yeah. that we are valuing the things that are important for sustainable life. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. And in my mind, that's like, absolutely, it's the environment and the climate, but it's also our people. It's our community. And the vast majority of the people in our community are working class people. Yeah. You know? So, and, and it is people who work every day. Yeah. It's not the hyper rich who are living off their investment funds and, nope. you know, have their own nonprofits or whatnot. So um, how... How is the future going to change to support a more just world? Is it going to happen? And really, who gets to buy an electric car? Most practically, that right? too. Like if a, if a big chunk of our coming debt, in terms of what we're about to spend with infrastructure and budget reconciliation, if a big chunk of the next ten years of what the American tax dollar is going to be paying back is about the electrification of the American roads and highways well, we better make space for everyone to have an EV. And that means the worker. That means the people who need to get to work every day and on time. So I think it's there's like the meta equity level and then there's this like really practical equity. If we're going to be pulling up all the gas stations and there won't be gas available about, you know, by and large by let's say 2035, it becomes a specialty product for your like, <laughs> you know, this tax credit expansion really seems to be targeting that American unionized worker, which is... It, if nothing else, a strong signal about what type of values we want to carry forward. Exactly. It's really exciting that people with far more power and influence outside of two people on a podcast. <laughs> Who are we again? <laughs> yeah, right. Are actually kind of in agreement. They're like, yeah, we do need to rethink these systems. Exactly. Well, it's, it's very hopeful and inspiring. That's a, it's a good note to end on. I think so. Yeah. So uh, as always, um, I'm Tavi. I'm Susanna. And we're representing Sun Common. This is the solar spill. And if you're living in Hudson Valley or Capital District of New York, or basically anywhere, and almost anywhere in Vermont, please give us a shout. We're at suncommon.com. We do residential and commercial solar. And this is the solar spill. I'll see you at the Sun Carnival this weekend, Todd. Yes, Sun Carnival!